You are listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, and on this episode, we will be inducting alumni into the Misty Hall of Fame. Every year, we send over a thousand students to over 25 countries, and we have a few who really stand out for different reasons. Because of this, we have unofficially created the Misty Hall of Fame, featuring students who have gone on five different Misty trips. We have two of those students, including Richard Caldwell. Through Misty, Richard has been to France, Israel, India, South Africa, the United Kingdom, and would have gone to China this summer. We encourage students to not just intern with us during their time at MIT, but to go multiple times. It's a joy to work with students who want to do that and are strong advocates for Misty. So let's listen to Ari's interview with Richard, who is our first inductee into the Misty Hall of Fame. Richard Cowell, welcome to the Misty Radio Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to meet with us um, and celebrate your entry into the Misty Hall of Fame. Having done uh, five different Misty experiences in five different countries and would have done more uh, had there not been a global pandemic and might still do more because we'll see yeah because you are a senior so let's let's start at the beginning here so um where did you in chronological order where did you go and what did you do yeah absolutely so the first experience that i had with misty was during my freshman summer i did a, an internship in paris and so I was working uh, with a professor there in a lab at ESPCI. And it, it was a really interesting project. I was actually, um, for, for the longest time on my resume, I had it listed as like the genus and species. Um, we were characterizing root growth. Um, and so basically developing experimental setups that would allow us to determine how root growth affected, or how root growth rather was affected by like different obstacles. So if you imagine a root hitting a surface um, based on how flexible that material is and the geometry that has a different impact on the deflection of the root and how it will continue to grow. Um, they were actually chickpeas. So I was literally sprouting chickpeas. I mean, growing chickpea roots, um, but it looks much fancier when you have the, the Latin um, genus and species. Right, um, is so that why that, you went to Israel next? Because you developed a fondness for hummus? Right, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And so after, after my freshman summer and that internship in Paris, I went uh, to Israel through the GTL Israel program. And there I was teaching with two other people, um, shout out to, to Nancy and Allison. And we basically were, we taught in four different schools. So in each school we taught for four days and it was a curriculum on, based on Bill Ollett's book, Discipline Entrepreneurship. Um, so after Israel, after doing GTL Israel, the next MISTI program that I did was my summer in India. And so for that, I was working with a company called Rematerials in, in Gujarat, so in Ahmedabad, which is a city in Gujarat, which is in Northwestern India. And for that project, basically the company was looking at making a low cost roofing material for particularly for low income um, households. And so that, that involved a lot of characterization of materials. We were basically trying to recycle cardboard and use other materials in that process in order to make a composite that could be used for roofing that was waterproof and also durable and also insulating. 
Then after that, I went to South Africa um, with the MIT Africa program, again for GTL. So I, I loved my first, my first round of teaching the year before in Israel and said, you know, I would love to, to do some more teaching. And I had the wonderful opportunity to go to Johannesburg and teach as part of a week-long curriculum that was centered on science and space. So um, that, that was a lot of fun and just a, a very, a very unique experience because I feel that a lot of the times there's an attempt to focus in on a very particular area and really zoom in. And this, it felt like as a team, we were able to give our students over the course of this week-long workshop, a really good overview of all sorts of topics um, that, that are important to consider in interdisciplinary problems. And then finally, um, the last experience that I was able to partially participate in before, um, before being sent back to the US um, was I went from South Africa directly to the UK for a study abroad program within my department, which is material science and engineering. And so I was at the University of Oxford. And so I was there for about two months. Um, the first half was taking classes, which was really interesting just because of the way that Oxford actually handles their coursework. They have a system of lectures and tutorials where you're, um, create, or you're completing problem sheets and then you basically are spending time working with a tutor um, and in our case for upper level students it was the actual professors um, going through the concepts in depth. Those, those plans were cut a little bit short and I was sent back to the US mid-March. Um, but that, that is the, the end of my, um, to date, the end of my experiences with MISTI. Um, at a very high level. I mean, it's just amazing, honestly, Richard. Like, um, I think about all the opportunities that are available around campus to get involved in so many different things, right? Um, it's pretty clear that you were really drawn to these um, international opportunities with MISTI. Absolutely. Um, and continue to be so. Why do you think that is? Like, what, it's, it's something you prioritized what what is it about these experiences and about you that drew you to them? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I think I could probably, I think there are maybe two facets to that. Or maybe, maybe it's one facet that I can talk about from, from two different sides. Um, and so, as I said, the first um, experience that I had with MISTI was traveling to France. And so I took French all throughout high school and I, I really enjoyed the language. I enjoyed learning about the culture. And even during my time in high school, I, I kind of tried to reason with my dad and say, I feel like a summer in France would give me a great opportunity to immerse myself and get to learn you know, firsthand about the culture and really get better exposure and a better grasp on the language in ways that you can't just learning in a classroom. And he was, he was horrified by the idea and very opposed. And he said, absolutely not. There's no way that I'm letting you leave this country. I can't keep you safe. I can't protect you, which I think is, is a reasonable thing from a parent's perspective <laughs> to worry about your kids. But, uh -huh. but I was very- but you were in high school. This is when you were in high school. This was in high school, right. right. So you weren't even 19 yet, yeah. Yeah, and I was very excited about the idea to, to potentially travel and experience new things. So I'm from a really small community in rural Wisconsin. And for me, I was really eager to get to explore new cultures and meet new people with new perspectives because I found that back home, 
um, there was a very high level of homogeneity. And so I, I was very interested in, in seeking out ways to, to hear new perspectives and discover new cultures. And I have found that, you know, Misty really has enabled me to do that. You know, the, the biggest thing there was adjusting to the, the language barrier. And between my level of French and the level of English of most of the people I interacted with in my lab and other people that I met outside of the lab, you know, it was definitely workable. It wasn't an insurmount, in, insurmountable task by any means, um, but it was certainly a, a learning, a learning curve and an experience that I, you know, gained a lot from. I, I understand your sentiment of not wanting to generalize a population of a particular country because every country to some extent has a lot of diversity in, you know, whether that's you know, ethnic or whether that's um, psychology or whatever it is. Um, but at the same time, like traveling the world as you have, <laughs> you also get to know that like culture is real, like and it has a huge influence on how people think, how they see themselves, how they see themselves in the world. Um, and oftentimes it's like the air that you breathe. It's like you don't know that it's there until you go somewhere where it isn't um, and you notice something has changed. Um, right. So maybe, you know, I'm sure that being in Israel or in some of the other countries you've been to also helped you perhaps gain some perspective on the U.S. in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think to add on and maybe tackle another aspect that I um, encountered in Israel, um, I guess as I'm stepping through just like how my experiences changed through my um, various mystic experiences, one thing that was really powerful for me was the conversations I had with um, like with the teachers I was interacting with. And so three of the schools that I um, was teaching in were, were Jewish majority schools. Um, and then one of the schools that I taught in was an Arab majority school. Th that was something that was illuminating for me. Um, like all of these schools were part of the same teaching network, um, meaning, I mean, it's similar, similar to the way that some teaching networks work in the US where there, there's guidance and there's funding that's passed down from this organization to all of its schools within this school network. But I definitely, and it's, it's like challenging to talk about, but there were like visible discrepancies in like the access to resources between these different schools. And like, you definitely heard like there, there are biases in these different communities and perceptions that people have of each other that, you know, there, there is conflict. I, I think it would be, you know, it, it wouldn't be fair to, to try and pretend that there, there isn't some conflict that exists there. But I think getting to hear perspectives um, from both sides and learn a little bit more about where people are coming from, for me was something that was really helpful in helping me to develop a sense about how I feel about the, um, the particular situation, um, just like in, in that specific local context. And I guess m moving up the chain in terms of difficulty, I think, and, and I very openly <laughs> say this, one of the most challenging experiences I've had abroad was my summer in India, which was my third experience, which 
I say challenging, but I also would argue like definitely one of the most beneficial things that I've done. And so I think th there were a lot of things going on during my summer in India that um, provided a lot of room for growth is maybe the way I would put it. I, I felt um, uncomfortable even at times is maybe the way to phrase it. Not not uncomfortable as in I, I didn't like agree with the, the way things were done or anything like that, but just being removed from a context where you feel like you are familiar and know these are the rules of the game and this is the, the way that we navigate this. Um, it was a very unfamiliar context. And so it, it was really challenging to navigate that, but I, I think I grew a lot as a person through that experience. I think another thing was really let, letting myself open up to perspectives and ideas that were um, like different than mine. And so I think one example of this is I remember pretty distinctly learning about the caste system back during my freshman year of high school. So this was years and years before I actually went to India. I, I remember I had a conversation with two of my coworkers kind of trying to learn more and hear like what their thoughts were on it. I was able to appreciate some of the nuance in the topic a little bit better. So one particular case they talked about was how um, for like college entrance, like there are ways that the caste system can actually be used to ensure that there are positions at top universities um, for people from lower castes. And it's, you know, maybe you might think of it as like similar to affirmative action in some ways. Um, but they, they kind of made the point that, you know, if you eradicate the caste system, you know, like people aren't suddenly all going to like, the distribution of wealth is not going to like be immediate. And so people will still not have access to the same resources, but under the caste system, you still have a way to say, okay, like we can try to help out, um, help out these people because we actually have a way to determine um, who the people that might need, you know, additional support, or we maybe should you know, consider their circumstances more heavily. Um, I guess the one last thing I would also really quickly mention about India, which was, I think a really interesting thing for me was up until that point in my life, I had never like for a long period, like for an extended period, been in a place where I was like, I would say like the other, using, using air quotes there um, in the sense that, you know, when I was at home and I went to the grocery store, everybody basically looked like me or the majority of people, all of a sudden you have, um, oftentimes I felt like I must be the only white person in Ahmedabad. And so going out grocery shopping, it's like, it felt like there were always eyes on me. It's like, oh, I must stick out. And it's not, it wasn't a bad thing by any means, but it was definitely an eye-opening ex experience. You know, oftentimes I always encourage white Americans in particular to go to countries, you know, to, to countries in Africa where I run the programs so they can experience what's what it's like to be a racial minority <laughs> yeah <laughs> because that is not something you know and, and i think as sort of what we were talking about before about traveling gives you better perspective on your own home country um like you had mentioned sort of like mundane things like going to the grocery store and looking around and seeing you're the only one <laughs> right and it, that has something to do with like uh 
how income and wealth is distributed. Um, but it is, it is uh, a, real ex a real lived experience for so many people that are minorities in the country that they live. I think the thing that I mentioned earlier um, was I think one of like half of the really cool thing. Um, so I should add, in addition to um, studying material science, um, I'm also really, really interested in education and teaching and teaching pedagogy. One of the cool things about the, um, like the workshop that we did in South Africa was the way we were able to take so many, so many different backgrounds and experiences and expertises on our team and craft a curriculum that was, I, I believe, and our feedback from students was phenomenal, um, a really engaging and very broad, I think eye-opening for a lot of students um, workshop. Talking about how, how I was affected by the cultural side of things, I think one of the things that really struck me um, and one of my biggest takeaways from my time in South Africa was in the way that students interacted with the problems that they saw in the world. And so I guess there, there are a couple of ways I saw this. Um, one example was I, I co-taught a lecture talking about team building and how you build effective teams that are going to um, be able to, like if it's a startup, like what's a successful startup team look like? And part of that lecture is, uh, was discussing the importance of diversity on teams and how homogenous teams often aren't able to attack problems from unique perspectives and oftentimes won't be able to find the same solution that a diverse team of people will. And part of that um, lecture was showing a, a clip from the movie Hidden Figures. And it's a very emotionally charged scene um, where the main character, she basically has to go outside and walk across the facility in the rain um, to use the restroom because they're, the only restroom in the building is white only. And it's a very, um, very powerful scene um, that comes afterwards where the boss, and he, he's a white male, he goes out, I believe it's with like, I don't know if it's a hammer, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but he basically um, hits the sign that says whites only. Um, and th there's this iconic line of say, him saying something along the lines of, at NASA, we all pee the same color. Um, and he said, you know, <laughs> you can use whatever bathroom you want. But that wasn't the thing that, that struck me. The thing that I was really impressed by was after the lecture, I had a student come up to me and, and he, he was a, a white male and he was talking to me and he said, yeah, I've seen this movie. It's a really good movie. It's interesting. I, I read up on the movie afterwards and I read up about what actually happened in real life. And the, like, that scene didn't actually happen in real life. There wasn't this big moment of this boss, like, breaking this sign that said whites only. And he said, you know, like, on one hand, it provides a model for people to say, you know, if I have the power to do so, I, sh I should act like this in this positive way and, you know, stand up against, like, forms of oppression and discrimination. On the other hand, you, you're battling this issue of like the concept of a white savior and you know us saying like oh it's this white man that's saving the day and doing this great thing and i was astonished hearing this from from a high schooler um just considering this issue and the fact a that he had done research on the movie beyond watching it but b that he had he had fleshed out this this deep consideration for 
a scene that, at least for me, my first glance, I said, yeah, I love this scene. It's so powerful. Um, but he was able to take it a step further and say, you know, like the, the message is good, but maybe there are some issues with the way this is being presented. So that for me actually was, I, I feel, and, and I've said this to many people, I feel as though while I was able to teach a lot of technical content to my students in South Africa, I feel like I learned so much more from them than they learned from me, which is, you know, a, a true privilege to be able to say that. I've always found um, South Africa as a place to have really nuanced conversations around these topics. You know, and coming from the U.S., um, where you know there of late there seems to be a bit more of an awareness and a willingness to discuss these topics, but um, it's much more baked in there. Um, and I think part of the part of the reason for that is that the subordinated group is the majority of the country, the vast majority of the country, um, and. Uh, you cannot ignore it. It is everywhere. And it is something that you can't just sweep away. In many ways, it, it really forces these conversations. Um, so if you want to just sort of touch on your UK experience, and then I have a few more questions. I, I did not have as long of a time in the UK as I had originally anticipated uh, having. In terms of similarities and differences, I think it's easiest to draw the most similarities between the UK or England in particular. Um, I think it was interesting because when you're looking at two things that are very, very similar in a lot of ways, um, I think there are also really particular like small things and small differences that do stand out. Um, and so one thing, and this is um, actually more on the academic side, um, so kind of comparing and contrasting MIT with the University of Oxford. Um, but I think MIT really has this emphasis on collaboration and working together. People at MIT and people at Oxford, there are people at both that, you know, like go to libraries, read books and study that way. But I think the, the ratio, and this is just like one silly example, but you, you'll find a lot of people who that's their primary way of learning is by, you know, going to the library and just, you know, basically putting your head in the books and saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, keep reading this passage until it makes sense to me. I'm going to keep thinking about this particular problem until, until I kind of get it sorted in my head. So, you know, you're kind you kind of have a party trick in a way, like you go, <laughs> you know, when you're in amongst a bunch of people for somebody your age, you've been and you've lived and worked in so many um, countries already. Um, so I'm curious how, people respond and and maybe you know you had you had alluded to your being from your hometown where um that was fairly homogenous and have you talked about uh, with people there uh, what your experiences were like traveling and you know how has your dad come along a bit in terms of his openness to you traveling um can I hear a little bit more about that um from your experience in the way i talk about my experiences I, I convey it very positively, and for the most part, people receive it positively and tend to, you know, be happy and say, oh, that's so cool that you've been able to, like, do these things and develop these different um, perspectives. How do you think that these experiences have made you a better engineer or 
scientist, um, given your field of study. Um, what, what, what do you bring to bear now that you, you have had these experiences and how, how have they informed your general approach? Um, I think there are two things that come to mind. And one is, I think just having a broader understanding of the people, like I think oftentimes in engineering um, and this like, especially in product design, but engineering broadly, thinking about who are you engineering something for? Like who, who is the end customer is oftentimes something that's harped on. And I think it's easy if you don't have a broad perspective on, you know, across the world, like what are people like, you know, what, I think it's challenging to, to really consider that breadth um, in a genuine way, unless you actually have talked to people who have different needs and, you know, have different perspectives on the way you might solve a problem. I also think the way that I consider problems just very abstractly um, has changed a lot. I think I've definitely had in all of the countries I've been different sorts of challenges, whether it was personal or based on the circumstances, challenges I faced and being able to consider, consider like what are, what are the tools that people in these cultures and in these countries actually use to navigate these challenges? How can I maybe leverage that knowledge that other people around me have in order to approach this? Um, so I think being able to incorporate some of those little tiny things where, you know, me from little old Medford, Wisconsin, you know, my initial instinct about this problem is I would do this, but thinking about, you know, actually, you know, how would my supervisor from France, you know, what, like what little bit of nuance does, does she bring to this approach? So well, it are, seems those, like the, uh, the, the journey is just beginning for you in many ways. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. So you, you had mentioned when we were talking before that you were, um, applying to graduate school. You, just out of curiosity, are you applying anywhere outside of the U.S.? I, I am considering a few places outside of the U.S. Uh -huh. um, but I'm definitely looking forward to figuring out ways that I can continue to have um, these international experiences, um, even though I'm sure they will take different forms as they consider likely being in grad school. All right, and Misty will be there alongside you as your partner until you are no longer eligible to participate. So thank you, Richard, again, um, for taking the time to chat today with us um, and wish you the best in the upcoming school year. Yeah, thank you. English is a language widely spoken across the globe and each country adds its own flavor. Likewise, in South Asia, English has its own dialect and in India, it is known as Indian English. Curious about how to speak English like an Indian, then tune in for more. Here are 10 phrases that will come in handy in the workplace in India. Many people in India have a nickname by which they are known. And so you'll often hear people ask for your good name. This just means they want to know your formal name or your first name. What is your good name? Hi, my name is Priya. Ready to let your hair down? and go out with your colleagues and friends? Well, don't be surprised if your colleagues tell you to go and freak out with them. While here in the US, to freak out means to have a meltdown. In India, it means to go out and have a great time. When visiting India, people are often confused by what's known as the Indian head nod. Unsure if someone is saying yes or no. In fact, 
The phrase yes, no is used liberally to emphasize something. You've paid no. You're coming, no? Passed out. Graduated from. Another question you might get from colleagues as part of introductions is where they passed out from. What they're asking is where the person graduated from and not where they've had painted. Yaar. Yaar is a Hindi term for friend. This Hindi term is seamlessly added to many Indian conversations in India. The word is kind of like dude in US. It's a really a term of endearment added at the end of any sentence. Why are we still having these meetings? I don't know, yaar. Mugging. Another phrase you might hear, particularly in a university setting, is that people have been busy mugging. But don't worry, they aren't out there stealing, but are just busy studying and memorizing for an exam or test. I've been up late, yaar, just busy mugging. And if you've been up mugging all night, the last thing you'd want to hear is to table an item. Now here's a perfect example of how the same phrase is used differently in another part of the world. Here in the US, if someone says, let's table this, it means that you're ending the topic and that the conversation is over. However, the opposite is true in India. To table an item is to bring up an issue or a topic. One of my favorite words used widely across India is to revert. Revert to what, you might ask? People are typically asking you to respond to a question or something posed in an email or text. Have you finished the report for tomorrow? Kindly revert. Prepone, to bring something forward. Another word that you might hear in a work setting is prepone. It's the opposite of postpone and just means to bring something forward earlier than the expected time. How about we prepone the meeting on the 30th to next week? Don't take tension. This is another familiar phrase you'll hear from colleagues and friends encouraging you to take it easy. Your first visit to India could be overwhelming. So don't take tension. Today we have talked about 10 popular Indian English phrases. If you are unable to mug them all, don't take tension, yaar. Jerry Fang is our second inductee into the Misty Hall of Fame. She traveled to Kazakhstan, France, Brazil, China, and Jordan. Super impressive. Like Richard, she has a good number of stories to share about her trips and how those experiences have influenced her perspective on the world. Let's get into it. Here's Jerry. Hi, Jerry Fang. Welcome to the Misty Radio Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time being here with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And uh, so, Jerry, uh, we are have the pleasure of inducting you into what I like to call the Misty Hall of Fame. <laughs> and that is um, students who have done um, five different Misty programs, um, and ideally in five different countries. And uh, that is what you have managed to do. And it's such an impressive feat, I feel, to have visited so many places while you were in college. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll, as we begin here, just uh, what was your um, field of study at MIT? I know you graduated uh, just this past spring. 
um, what was your field of study at MIT and um, what is it that interested you about doing these um, international experiences? Yeah, so I majored in 4B, which is the newer art and design major that was started my sophomore year. And I also minored in computer science and biomedical engineering. So I would say generally, I love exploring. I love learning new things. And I think that attitude can be very applicable uh, to international travel and learning about new cultures and uh, what the MISTI program offers students. So you went to five places, um, starting with Kazakhstan. So let's hear um, where you went in order and what you did in those places. Right, so freshman year, I went to Kazakhstan. That was the first year they had that program. And I think I remember seeing a flyer for it. And when I uh, went to talk to um, Ekaterina or Katya, I heard about some very cool like smart city projects that were available there. And at the time I was considering um, architecture or urban planning. And that seemed like an area I wanted to explore as I was about to decide my major. And I had never been to Kazakhstan before and I felt like I would probably not have gone on my own. So being able to do it with MIT support was like very attractive. And I think um, <laughs> I probably as a freshman didn't consider enough like the ramifications of it being like the first year they had the program. So like going in first week, I was also the first person to get there. I was this excited. I like booked like the earliest flight, um, earliest start date. Uh, so it was a bit overwhelming for me at first as a freshman um, yeah. in this country. And we had partnered with um, Almani Management University. So we did have like companions who were there to guide us. And that was so reassuring. And honestly, like, <laughs> I don't know what I could have done without them. What, what city were you in in Kazakhstan? I was in Almaty. Almaty, okay. And you, you had worked on some city design projects? Yeah, so originally I was paired for um, a smart city project with uh, the government, but um, the director of like the Kazakhstan side of the program apparently had left to do an MBA program. And so that side of the program had some like shuffled priorities in terms of like uh, which which companies and which projects they wanted allocation to. So I actually ended up uh, being placed on several different projects uh, in succession um, before we finally found one that like kind of more matched my interests. So like I kind of bounced around to this like economic development project, um, this like rural kind of um, land development area. But then I ended up being at this uh, media agency that was uh, developing an innovation forum for the city of Almaty and also developing um, kind of the city's tourism infrastructure. Uh, so one of the main parts of that was the Visit Almaty website. Oh, wonderful. So if I go to that website now, will I see some of the work, the design work you did on it? Hopefully. I actually have not gone on it recently. <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago already. So, yeah. where did, so then so, uh, you came back to MIT and you said, okay, well, I had a great experience in Kazakhstan and I'm now going to pick a new place to go. And you went where? Well, I, one of um, the sisters in the sorority I was in at the time had sent um, a link to a hackathon that a company that she had met through Misty France was holding over IEP and it was a product design hackathon. So at that time I was pretty much deciding I might major in 4B um, 
And so I wanted this experience to essentially help me decide like, would I be pursuing this path or not? Uh, so I applied to the hackathon, interviewed and got in, and that was sponsored by Misty France. So I went to uh, this very cute city in France called Grenoble, and we did um, about a week long hackathon there. And what, um, what kind of company was it that was sponsored? Yeah, the company was called Push Nuggets and it was a startup uh, that centers around the idea of play. So bringing play into everyday experiences, uh, into like companies, into products. And um, have you participated in hackathons in the US? And you know, if so, how, would the, how did the experience differ in France versus in the US? Yeah, I actually um, organized uh, HackMIT. So, oh, great, okay. Yeah, it was quite different because HackMIT, as you might know, is like extremely big, over 1,000 hackers from all over the world. Um, but this hackathon in France was, I think at most 30 participants. It's been a while, I'm guessing. Um, but it was very small, very intimate. And each day, um, Lore, one of the co-founders would like cater this amazing French lunch and breakfast and it was so so thoughtful um which i think was quite different from like not saying like u.s hackathons aren't thoughtful but it just seemed very individually catered and i felt like i could um like the curriculum and kind of like the classes uh she was pairing as we were building uh these products all kind of like facilitated towards that and then at the end we had this like i think very French, like celebratory um, party that culminated the hackathon, which I don't think would have been possible in a lot of the um, very large scale um, university ones that I had been to in America. Okay, so you went to France and then you came back to MIT and then you decided you wanted to go somewhere else and you went where? Oh, okay, yeah, and then the same, <laughs> then sophomore year, yeah. Um, I was part of an organization called the Borderline Neural Project, and we were reached out to by this PhD student who was partially working with the Media Lab, but she was doing her PhD in Brazil on kind of like graffiti and graffiti art and like AR across uh, different cities and like how to use like AR and technology to kind of like bridge these different cultures. And so we were collaborating on a project with her and Missy Brazil uh, sponsored this project. Uh, and then we flew to Sao Paulo and worked on uh, two augmented reality murals in cultural centers, two cultural centers um, across Sao Paulo. And we worked with like this feminist graffiti group, like other street artists, um, fab labs in the area uh, to kind of like bring this cultural element and bridge it um, across the centers with uh, augmented reality. And it was such a cool experience, like getting to um, talk to people who were like painting the streets at night and working with them uh, during the day. And it was also super interesting. They gave us kind of this like lesson on graffiti art in Sao Paulo and kind of like what marked the differences uh, between um, graffiti art in like the US, for example. Did you find anything particularly surprising about Sao Paulo or Brazil in general that maybe you weren't expecting? Um, I think, oh, on the last day when we were there, we went to the Pride Parade. And one of my, I had never been to a Pride Parade before, but one of my friends that was there with me, who was doing the project with me, had gone to the San Francisco one. 
And essentially in Sao Paulo, you're just like dancing in the streets along with the parade, along with like all these giant floats and these like cars and like bikes and people selling things. It was just like everybody together. And it was like, energy was so infectious, um, but also like a little chaotic. Like sometimes people would like, it'd be like a crowd rushing towards this one particular popular singer that showed up in a float. And then you just inevitably like end up being dragged with the crowd, right? Uh, which would never be allowed to happen in the US. So like my friend said, like in SF when she went, it was like very orderly. You had to stand behind like these like barricades and like watch the um, float go by. And I, next year, like the next year, I went to the Pride Parade in DC and that was kind of experience that I had. So it was definitely very different. Like I felt a lot more energized, I think like part of the parade like, in the street, <laughs> even if- Less participatory, yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you want to include this, but like at one point, whenever the singer was there, like the crowd like literally dragged this guy who was selling these drinks and his like cart tipped over, which like tipped other people over. And it was just such a chaotic situation. It was different from what I was, I don't think I knew what I was gonna expect. Like I'd been to like Nicaragua through D-Lab. So I think I imagined like that was more like South America vibes, like in terms of buildings. But like, of course, Sao Paulo is like a much bigger um, city, like much bigger, like the buildings are taller, but all the buildings were very like, clean cut you know what i mean i wouldn't say they were like soviet because like it was more less austere than soviet but like the buildings were like very clean silhouettes um so you just said something that uh is even more amazing is that you managed to go to nicaragua as well i didn't know about that one that, that was not through misty <laughs> not through misty but still like you know for us like that's still interesting and on topic um um what which d lab class was that it was, at the time, it was called New Economies. I think they've changed the name since. Um, mm -hmm. They were looking at, like, new economic models, so, like, cooperatives and, like, our main collectives. Um, Is that with Libby McDonald? Yeah, that was Libby McDonald. Do you know her? Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. Yeah, excellent. Um, okay, so I don't know when you managed to fit in this Nicaragua trip with all these other trips you were taking. So, but after Brazil... Let's, we'll follow the, you know, we'll go the same way we've been doing this. You came back to MIT and then you decided, okay, I want to go somewhere else again. And where did you go? And then, okay. Right. You've traveled so much, it's hard to <laughs> <laughs> Um Right. And then junior year, um, I'd wanted to apply to this before, but of course, schedules at MIT never work out. So, but like junior year, I finally had the chance, like this opening during IEP to apply to Mumsy, which is this hardware hackathon that happens in Hong Kong and is sponsored by uh, Missy China. And um, so I applied, interviewed, got in, and it was like a period of two weeks in Hong Kong where they go, um, they do through kind of this like lean entrepreneurship uh, process and model. And you like work together with a team, like, um, to find a problem area and like verify that it is indeed a problem area with like customers and users and kind of like develop this business plan, develop this hardware prototype, and then like pitch uh, to a group of people at the end. And they take you to like these, they take you to Shenzhen, which is like one of the like manufacturing um, centers in China and also like an area where a lot of startups and hardware um, 
is like happening. So we were taken to like injection molding facilities and like other factories, which I had never been exposed to as I am a design major and not a mechanical engineering major. Uh, so even though I was working with hardware, I hadn't been exposed to a lot of these like manufacturing processes, which was extremely interesting to me. Um, senior year, I finally had the chance to like have an open space for it. So I really wanted to do GTL at some point in my MIT career. And I'd heard great things about Jordan. Uh, so I applied to see Jordan and I was placed in Amman uh, with another group of all women, essentially. And we worked at two schools. So there was Amman Academy and Jubilee Institute. So Amman Academy was kind of this like private school and Jubilee Institute was kind of this like gifted and talented magnet school where like the government like bust in students from all over the city surrounding areas. Um, so there were two pretty much very different uh, um, educational environments and kind of different uh, student populations that were there. So it was really interesting developing a curriculum for both of them and also uh, like kind of iterating as we were on the ground and learning what students were interested in and what they had previously been exposed to and what they wanted to learn. So we've covered six countries. You had mentioned to me offline that had there not been a pandemic, you were gonna to try to go to Denmark to make it a seventh. Now, is there any other place that you went through any other MIT program that we didn't talk about? Or is? Well, I've, like I after Misty trips, I've gone to other places. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's not, not your personal trips or something else. Uh, but. Let me think. Like, oh, I was going to go back to Grenoble this spring because I was helping organize an entrepreneurship conference that was unfortunately canceled because it, uh, it was during March. Well, hey, that's still, I mean, that's amazing. Honestly, like, um, you really, uh, you know, don't meet too many people who've, had, who've been able to travel that much, um, you know, by the time they are, I'm guessing, around 22 years old. So, um, you know, what is it? Like, you know, you had mentioned a bit before, but there's clearly something about you that is like really drawing you. I mean, so I, I want to sort of get deeper into that. Uh, you know, what what is pulling you toward these international experiences? You know, what about your background or your experience? Or yeah. what is it that you're seeking that you think you can find through these experiences? Yeah. First of all, I would say I'm like extremely lucky to have had these opportunities through MIT. And I think coming in and realizing that this all was available to me was like very shocking to me. And I immediately knew I wanted to um, have as many of these experiences as possible. Um, I would say, um, so like growing up, I've like moved around uh, quite a lot. So I've lived kind of pretty much all over the East Coast, in New Jersey, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, and most recently Texas. Um, so I'm like pretty used to like moving around, starting over, getting used to a new environment. And each time I'm in a new place, I find it quite exciting, like seeing um, like how, how people interact with each other. Uh, what are the things, what are the popular things to do? Like what are, what are, the, what are the norms? And exploring the area um, around us. And yeah, so I, I think I've grown up. Um, kind of expecting that, you know, I might like move again in the next couple of years. So I don't know if I'm as satisfied um, staying in one place for a long time. 
always want to be seek. You're always like looking for something new and interesting and exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I think that might be why I'm not sure. I think, I think as a designer, I'm also just like looking for like new sources of inspiration. And I would say most people, like most people that are designers that would agree with me that like travel is like one of the greatest sources of inspiration. Um, yeah. That, that, that's a good segue. Do you have any concrete examples of how, you know, you were um, inspired by design uh, methodologies or, you know, systems that you encountered in some of the other countries that you visited that you were later able to implement and, um, you know, maybe really surprise people with how thoughtful you were about a particular uh, way you, you did something? Well, I can't speak to what people <laughs> feel about me, um, but... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, if you got any feedback, you know, well, I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think design, like, especially now, is, like, all about the user and how the user feels and how the user reacts to what you've made. And, like, going through this hardware boot camp in um, Hong Kong, it was very impressed upon us. But, like, I think, like, the starkest example to us was we were, like, interviewing people and we were very interested in investigating the area of, like, cooling in Hong Kong because it's a very hot and humid environment. And we thought, like, um, like business owners and building owners, that would be a pressing problem for them. And also for like commuters who have to like go from home to office. But the people we'd spoken to, I think it was around like a 60s to 70 degree day during the winter there. And they had during, yeah, during the winter there. And they had on like three coats and we were asking them about like if heat was a problem for them. And they were like, no, I am cold right now. We have like AC everywhere like the only reason people faint in like subways is because it gets so packed like heat is not a problem for me so they were like already so used to it but that would have never occurred to us because we were like it must be so uncomfortable in the summer um and I think after that experience uh we were still interested in like cooling solutions and um based on like feedback from other users we pivoted uh more to like a device that would assist people are women with menopause. And that was also interesting because there were a lot of cultural differences in talking about like uh, women's health and like talking openly about these issues uh, between like the more Asian cultures and more like westernized uh, ones we are used to. And I feel like I, I had more of an inkling of that like coming from um, a more Asian uh, Chinese like cultural background, um, but also like seeing that firsthand was very helpful uh, for our understanding of like how we were designing for uh, these two populations and if we should choose like a specific population uh, to design for. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what you what you said makes a lot of sense. It is like, you know, you you design for the user, you design for the, the person, the, the, the customer, essentially. And what better way to understand the customers and like different customer points of view than traveling to all these different places where you'll find customers of totally different cultures and totally different backgrounds. So do you think like in your current work that's made you like much more sensitive to like uh, the cultural viewpoints of um, the customers that you're currently working with? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, so right now I'm working with a nonprofit startup that is uh, bringing kind of a DIY um, automated insulin delivery system uh, through the FDA process. 
and like kind of the DIY movement, like people who are very into like hacking and creating solutions for themselves tend to be on average, um, somewhat like more educated, more knowledgeable about technology and kind of like, it's a very empowering movement um, for like patients to create solutions for themselves. We have been realizing um, that like the population of users we think it might serve uh, might not serve all of those people. And I think it's been helpful for me um, with these like international experiences to give like um, some concrete examples of like uh, people it could help that might be outside of our like current target or not target, but like default user group. Um, yeah, so in terms of like device experience, like what devices people have, what technology people use, um, yeah. So I guess just we can we can wrap up. I'm just curious, you know, with all the international experiences you've had through Misty, um, for maybe a first year student who's now listening to this um, in this sort of pandemic, stuck at home, but like what, you know, let's assume travel comes back within the next year or two. You know what, you know what advice would you have for them to? take advantage of these opportunities and maybe think about or prioritize them as part of their um, MIT education? Yeah, I think for me, something I've always considered is like, what, what would I be able to do at MIT that would not be possible if I didn't be, if I wasn't there, if I didn't have like the institutional resources um, backing me up? And like, what, what are these experiences that I want to gain and I want to learn from that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do and kind of like prioritizing that in my decision making um, because I feel as a freshman you're like bombarded with all these opportunities and choices often for like the first time in your life and you're like making them independently somewhat. Um, so having like a kind of like a prioritized way of like how you're deciding and but also like not being afraid like don't just stick with uh, countries you've been to before or like projects you've done that you can just do like slightly different in another country. I think this is a real opportunity um, to explore and have like MIT support and like your friends near you. Like you meet a lot of great friends um, through these programs, like just a couple people in the country together. It really, really bonds people. All right, well, thank you, Jerry, so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Can't wait to find out where you go next. <laughs> I'm excited to have a place to go next. Thank you so much to Richard Caldwell and Jerry Fang. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is edited by Amina Katun. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts.